welcome to the Intercollegiate Podcast. I'm Daniel Libet. This is episode 10. We have reached double figures. Hooray. Today's show represents part two in our heretofore occasional series that I'm calling Heretics in the Temple, where I speak with college faculty members from around the country who have been, are being, or are known to be outspoken in their criticisms of how college sports plays out at their schools. Last week, I spoke with Bill Harbaugh, an economics professor at the University of Oregon. This week, our focus will be shifting from the Pacific Ocean to the east bank of the Mississippi River to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, home of the LSU Tigers. I'll be talking today with Bob Mann, LSU's Douglas Manship Chair of Journalism. Bob is a former political journalist turned Democratic politico turned mass communications professor. Bob is no shrinking violet to begin with, and over the years he has leveraged some of his criticism at what he describes as the discrepant financial priorities that Louisianans place on college football and higher education. Bob and I spoke at the end of last week in the wake of LSU's National Football Championship, and we discussed, among other things, a couple of his tweets about LSU football that went very, very viral. Later on in our College Sport Research Institute segment, I speak with Peter Schrader, an associate professor of health, exercise, and sports science at the University of the Pacific. Peter's research focuses on organizational culture and academic integration of college sports. We specifically talk about a paper he wrote back in 2010 for the Journal of Issues in Intercollegiate Athletics, which attempted to create a model for defining a college athletic department's culture. But first, to Tiger Country we go. And so, without further ado, here's my conversation with Bob Mann. All right, Bob. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Good to be with you. All right. So I wanted to ask you, before we get into your history and a whole bunch of other things, about your most recent viral tweet related to LSU football. Because mm-hmm. there was a New York Times economics writer, uh, Benjamin Applebaum, who went on to Twitter prior to the national championship game to highlight a story in a very school-marmish way that pointed out that the LSU was canceling two days of classes in light of the national championship for its students. And then you, of all people, and we'll get into why uh, that's particularly interesting that this came from you, uh, sort of responded uh, in, a, in a tweet with tens of thousands of, uh, of likes and, and several thousand retweets um, to basically uh, tell tell Applebaum to chill out and that college can be fun <laughs> and that you would make up that the classes would be made up um, at the uh, at the end of the school year and what was interesting about this was it wasn't so many months before this um, that you had another viral tweet related to LSU athletics uh, this one ha- coming from a different perspective where you juxtaposed a photo of the new fancy multi-million dollar football performance center that LSU had just unveiled 
with a picture of the dilapidated uh, library. Um, so I just, I, I guess I, I wonder what, what, what moved you of all people again to, uh, to tell, uh, to, to sort of celebrate and appreciate the canceling of classes for the uh, national championship game. Well, first of all, the, the Applebaum tweet was a series of tweets and it wasn't just the first one that, that set me off. I might've ignored it if it had just been the first one, but the, I don't know if you saw what else he wrote, but it was a, a series of condescending tweets that essentially added up to this argument that LSU wasn't a, wasn't a, a legitimate educational institution because we had decided to cancel classes for a couple of days at the beginning of the semester. And it was, it, it was condescending, insulting to, I think, uh, the students and the faculty of this university who work really hard to educate students, many of whom are first generation um, college students. And, and, I think do a, an incredible job of adding to, um, uh, you know, adding to the, to the, um, uh, you know, making this a better state. And I just thought it, it needed, it needed a response. And look, I, you know, I'm, I, I'm as, as concerned and worried about the quality of LSU as anybody and the, the lack of emphasis that the, that the people of the state put on this institution but I also recognize this is an SEC school and that a lot of kids come here because they want that quote unquote SEC experience, which includes football and basketball and baseball and everything else. I'm going with some friends tonight to see LSU gym, the women's gymnastics, uh, which is a fantastic uh, uh, you know, tradition here. And that's why they come. That's one of the reasons why they come here. And, you know, it, we're not going to change that. And I'm not looking to change that. I'm looking to not diminish athletics as much as I'm looking to um, to enhance academics, but to suggest that because the school, uh, you know, sort of bows very slightly to that reality uh, at the beginning of the semester when, you know, I've been, I've been doing this for a, quite a while here and I, you know, we've had hurricane days, we've had snow days, we've had all kinds of reasons to cancel classes for a day or a week. And I've always found it, pretty easy to adjust the syllabus in the midst of a semester to account for that. It is, it's it, one of the easiest things for a faculty member to do at the beginning of the semester is account for a couple of lost days. And so it just seemed to me to say, you know, chill out and also quit insulting my university. Fair points all. I want to get to the, uh, the other tweet, but let's, let's hold off on that for a while and let's dig into a little bit of your background and history for those who might not know who you are or who you were and what you did prior to you uh, joining the faculty at LSU. Can you, can you give a little bit of backstory to yourself? Yeah. So I worked in journalism in uh, Louisiana for a number of years as a political writer in North Louisiana for a couple of newspapers in Monroe and then Shreveport. Um, and in my sort of maybe mid to late twenties, I left journalism, moved to Washington where I was press secretary to, um, uh, Senator Russell Long, um, and then um, worked for him for a couple of years uh, until his retirement from the Senate, and then went to work for his successor, John Bro, uh, and worked for Bro for all, all but one year of his three of his three terms in the Senate. Uh, the first uh, term in Washington as his press secretary, the last um, two terms as his press secretary out of Louisiana and finally as his state director, and then went to work for Governor Kathleen Blanco as her communications director 
for a, a couple of years, two and a half years, and then left that uh, about 14, 14 years ago to come to LSU and, and teach um, where I have been ever since. And you're also a historian, um, and you've written yeah. historical books. What are some of the things yeah. that you've written about? Yeah, so I started writing books with, with Senator Bro's indulgence and support. Um, I wrote a biography of my of, of Senator Long, who I worked who I had worked for, and uh, since then I've written um, books about uh, political history of the Civil Rights Movement, the Walls of Jericho, a book of, a, a similar book of the a political history of the Vietnam War. I've written about the Cold War. I've written about wartime dissent, um, and uh, a couple of books uh, that deal with the 1964 presidential election. Uh, and my most recent book is um, dealing with that. Another, it's it's really a story of of Ronald Reagan's political evolution, becoming Ronald Reagan, that I published in in October of last year. What is what are the classes that you teach or have taught at LSU? So I teach mostly uh, courses in political communication here at LSU, which um, is another way of thinking about that is it's political public relations. So we have a public relations section in our school and we have journalism and political communication. And I teach I teach young people who want to go into politics, who want to uh, who want to work in campaigns, who want to work in government. Um, I'm teaching them about political writing, speech writing, um, pers- political persuasion. A lot of my students end up going to law school. Um, but, um, I teach, I, I teach political writing and political communication. So when you, um, took the job at LSU, you were obviously going to a school, you were going to be a member of a faculty of a school that, as you noted, is an SEC school, is a major athletic school, is a major football school. Was this, did this appeal to you? Did this dawn on you? Did this matter to you, um, prior to taking the, uh, the position? Well, what appealed to me was that um, that it was the it was the major university in my state, and I wasn't uh, really looking to leave Louisiana at that point in my life. We had young children, and um, with with grandparents who lived an hour away, and my wife had always lived in Louisiana and was very very much a Louisiana girl, a Louisiana grad, Louisiana State University grad, I should say, and um, it just seemed like the most natural thing in the world and a very lucky uh, outcome for me to be able to uh, find a, a faculty position uh, doing what I really wanted to do. I taught as an adjunct here for a few years, uh, knew I liked teaching, and knew that being on a faculty would be much more conducive to my writing, which I had been pursuing on the side as a you know, just a sort of a, a sideline uh, while I was working for these politicians. And it was, you know, it wasn't that, wasn't that easy pretty demanding to write books on the side and when it's not really part of your job. And now it's very much part of my job with a lot of institutional support for what I do. So it was just, was and is a dream come true. So where you got on the radar of myself and and maybe people who are out of the state um, was when you, as I mentioned before, uh, wrote a tweet. This was, I think, sometime in July um, where LSU had just unveiled this extremely beautiful-looking new football performance facility with these very fancy cot-like beds for the players, um, and then you and you made the point about how sort of the the richness of LSU football compared to, uh, at least in a, from a facility standpoint, if not in other ways, compared to 
some of the infrastructure on campus, the the educational infrastructure, um, pointing out the the state of the library with a picture. What was this is not the first time I've since learned that you've uh, you've kind of made noises about the state of the library in particular, but tell me about the uh, the tweet and the motivation for writing it and the response you got from it. Well, so uh, the tweet was um, not a picture of the library, but I just simply tweeted. Um, they, they had posted a picture of this um, of this twenty three million dollar locker room uh, with these amazing seats that you've described, and I just tweeted. Meanwhile, across campus, I have to vacuum my own office with a oh, that's a right, bus. that's right, that's right. Yeah, and so I was just you know making the point that that. You know that I, I can't even get anybody to vacuum my office. Like I had to go had to go down to Walmart and buy my own vacuum cleaner just to clean my own office because um, all the layoffs we've had around here from of uh, you know custodial people and all that. Um, but it was really a continuation of a drum I've been beating for a lot of years. I, one of the things I neglected to mention in my quick bio is that I, uh, for about five years, wrote a, a weekly uh, column in the New Orleans paper, the New Orleans Times-Picayune about politics at a Sunday column. And, and I just, I'd actually started it before I had the column when I was just writing a, a political blog and just started nosing around campus and taking photographs of the, um, of the, of the various buildings on this campus that from the outside look like they're, you know, nice, nice facilities, but you get inside and look a little cl- more closely, you find that they're falling apart and, what would, be, what would be some, yeah, what would be some other example? Well, like, you know, like the library was where I started. And then there was, um, there were other buildings, um, in the quad and the sort of the center of campus, really beautiful buildings with uh, great structures, but just have not been very well maintained because of the budget cuts, um, the general neglect, but there, you know, the UEP long field house, which finally, by the way, got some uh, state money and is going to be renovated. Uh, and, um, and, you know, the library is, is the most symbolic, but there are a, a bunch of buildings around this campus uh, that I've nosed around in that are mostly in the quad, you know, the historic center of campus that are just, um, you know, and just all kinds of, you know, they flood um, when it rains, they flood, the, the, the roof leaks, the, you know, ceiling tiles are falling in on students, you know, I mean, and, and a lot of the stuff people, when I, once I started doing it, uh, people started calling me and saying, hey, you know, this thing just happened in my building. You should come over and get a picture of it. Or they would send me pictures of it. And then I would post it on my blog. And um, it really um, shocked a lot of people around the state who did not spend a lot of time on campus or the only time they were on campus might have been on Sunday or Saturdays while they were tailgating before a game and are not allowed to, you know, go inside the buildings. And from the outside, everything looks fine. And then suddenly there's this faculty member who's posting a a lot of these pictures and people are being sort of forced to face up to the fact that the that the university facilities have been really grossly neglected, and there's you know a lot of deferred maintenance that's really taking a toll on these buildings. And um, I don't think there was anything that I wrote in my column over the five years that I wrote for the Picayune that attracted more attention and got more readers than what I wrote about the LSU library. So I realized very early on, for good or bad, for positive or or bad publicity for the university, people did care about it and were interested in learning more about it. So I knew when I, you know, I was, I was, I knew, I, you know, I didn't know that that tweet would go 
as viral as it did, but I knew it would, it would probably strike a chord when I responded uh, to it by just pointing out that, that, hey, remember, there's this other part of campus here that's that's suffering, and while we're celebrating what's going on uh, over in the athletic facilities, that there's there's this other, you know, there's best of times, worst of times on this campus, and let's don't forget about that. Can you give a little bit, uh, so I've never been to LSU, so for my sake, and then anybody else who's listening who also hasn't been or is not familiar, can you give, can you kind of paint a picture a little bit about the campus, and then also talk about the funding of the institution? Is it heavily reliant on state subsidies? Um, what has been the financial picture of the university over the years that you've worked there? Yeah, so it's a it's a beautiful campus with thousands of gorgeous live oak trees. It's it's one of the most, I think, I've, I've traveled around the country a lot over the years and visited a lot of college campuses doing archival research and just for whatever reasons. And it really is, I think, one of the more beautiful college campuses in America. Um, the, built, the, the the architecture is sort of loosely patterned after it's very if you visited the Stanford campus you would feel kind of at home at LSU uh, the the same kind of architecture the same sort of Spanish um, architecture with the with the with the sort of the uh, orangish terracotta uh, tiles on the roofs and um, just a really beautiful campus in almost every way as long as you don't look too closely at, at it. Um, but it's 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 you know if if we took better care of it, it really would be one of the most beautiful campuses on on the on the you know on the planet. Um, but it's but but uh, you know it's not been very well funded, especially in the last um, fifteen years after um, Bobby Jindal, a, a Republican Congress former congressman, became governor and began uh, cutting drastically funding for higher education across the state, uh, cut higher education in Louisiana more than any other state during uh, that period. When, 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 to be fair, most states were cutting aid, state aid to higher, higher education. The colleges and universities were all suffering almost across the board. Louisiana just did it more than any other state and has rebounded probably less than any other state in, since the economic recovery uh, of the last eight or so years. And um, so when I came to work for LSU in 2006, the university was, the university budget was roughly 75% state appropriations, 25% self-generated funds, fees and tuition. Um, today, it's almost the opposite. It's almost 75% self-generated, self-generated fund tuition and fees, and about 25% state funds. So it's, it's, the tuition has gone up a lot, uh, not as not enough to fully make up for the downturn in uh, in state appropriations, but it's gone up a lot. And I think tuition in Louisiana has gone and LSU and across the state has gone up probably more than any other state because of that. Now, put on the uh, chessboard here the the kind of at the other end of the spectrum is the football or the football program or the athletic department in general, which is is at the at the wealthy end of college athletic departments how does that fit into this and particularly because i if i understand correctly it was about a decade ago if not longer where there was an agreement that was reached where the athletic department would transfer an annual amount of i think seven million dollars to main campus um every year 
And, yep. uh, and this sort of codified the notion that a lot of athletic departments claim about their benefit to, to the university. This, at least uh, to the amount of, you know, six or seven million dollars made that explicit at LSU. Um, now we can, we can talk about how in, in recent time, I think in the last year or so, the new athletic director has indicated an end to those, those, uh, fund transfers, but kind of more broadly, how, how does it feel, um, to have a university that in some ways is struggling, uh, financially, but then to have an athletic department that is, uh, that is doing quite well. Yeah. So I think this, uh, you know, I'm not, you would know. You may know better than me about this, but I think that LSU is is the only, if not, or maybe is one of the only, if not the only, schools um, in the country whose athletic department is totally um, self sufficient and not reliant on a single dime, officially at least, a single dime of uh, of public money. I, I think it depends on how you define that. I would, I would. I would guess, yeah, but. I think I think that you're right, and I, and I would also I, I I appreciate the caveat you say because again, I mean the, one of the things that they're able to benefit from, as all all of these institutions are able to benefit from, is is the uh, is the nonprofit status of the university. Correct. <laughs> that they're able correct, to, and to and, live under. and also the the stadium that that LSU plays in, um, the Tiger Stadium, was built with state funds many years ago and has been renovated and upgraded and expanded with private money but uh the the uh the, the guts of the building are were, were built with state money and um so yeah i i the 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 athletic department here at lsu is awash in in in, in cash i mean they they have never they just don't want for anything and as as evidenced by the the taj mahal of a of a locker room that they were able to provide and the amazing salaries and um, benefits that they're able to provide for coaches uh, for football, basketball, baseball, um, and other, and, and, and all the, the athletic department, uh, well-paid athletic department uh, employees. Um, and um, most of, most if not all of that is paid for by, by private donations to a, to a separate foundation called the Tiger Athletic Foundation, which um, actually I think is the only, athletic foundation in the sec that that produces more money each year in charitable contributions than the actual foundation of the university that is created to support the academic side of the um of the institution so that here you get you have a lot more in charitable giving to athletics than you do to academics. And that's not has, the case has, in other schools. Is there any examples that come to mind of, of where, uh, athletic department donors or boosters have been able, have been, uh, have been made donations to main campus causes, or does it seem like those attentions really just stay with the athletic department? Well, I don't. Yeah, I, I can't give you specific examples of that. I don't know. Um, I just, you know, I know that, um, and I'm sure there are examples of people who who have contributed, uh, who have contributed to both. Um, but I, you know, I'm not as I'm not as intimately familiar with who's giving what and and uh, and how the giving. I have not looked at the specific. Um, um, yeah, I haven't looked at the breakdown of giving to TAF to the Tiger Athletic Foundation and cross-reference it, um, but um, 
here's an example. This is not this is not in an answer to your question necessarily, but it just sort of demonstrates, I think, the ease at which you know this, the the enthusiasm that people have for athletics over um, over academics. There's a, a lot of these buildings around here on campus, and the, and the building that I'm in, the building that I'm next door to, I'm I'm, I'm actually looking out my window right now at the building next door and the, all the windows in that building are almost rusted out. The frames of the building of, of the, of the windows are metal and they're rusted out. They're just completely rust. You can't even see paint on them anymore. And the, and those kind of windows were also in tiger stadium, which is right next door, uh, which are of the same era. And, um, a few years ago, the university, uh, the athletic department decided that they wanted to replace the windows in tiger stadium, those window frames. And so, um, they just ask people to adopt a window. I think it's like two or $3,000 per window. And it was almost within a couple of days, people were falling all over themselves to buy a window for Tiger Stadium and renovate those windows. So now if you walk by Tiger Stadium, it looks like a brand new facility because all the windows are, are brand new. They've all been replaced. They're all, it's just a bright and shiny building on the out, on the front and directly across the street. I mean, you could throw a rock from the bottom of Tiger Stadium to the building that I'm looking at across the street those windows are still rusted out. There's no money to replace them. And, um, and you know, maybe one day they'll find the money for them. But I guarantee you, if, if you said, hey, let's let's have a fundraiser to, would anybody like to adopt a window in Hodges Hall or Hatcher Hall? I'm looking at Hatcher Hall next door. Would anybody like to adopt a window in Hatcher Hall? You couldn't find two people in this town who'd be willing to do that. So what, how did it rub you then when the athletic department decided, I mean, they, I think the announcement was they were reconsidering, but I think everyone has accepted this as they're ending the, uh, the fund transfers from athletics to main campus. It didn't bother me because I was always opposed to it to begin with. I, I thought that it was insulting to the rest of campus that we had to live off the largesse of the football team, um, that it excused the state. It excused the legislature, excused the governor from having to give us the money that we deserve to educate the students that the state has asked us to educate. It just seemed to me that it was just completely backwards and that um, that we, we it, it, it made it less likely that the, that, the, that, the, that the president and others at the university would go down to the, to the legislature and ask them to properly fund the university because we were getting it from the football team. And I just thought that it was a, a big mistake and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be ending and I'm sure a lot of good has been done with the money. I don't know exactly what has been done with the money, but I, I'm sure a I lot of gonna, good. I was going to ask you just that if, if, if anybody <laughs> has a sense of, I think it was like cumulatively in the $60 million range over the period of, of a decade or so of the fund transfers. And I was, yeah. So, I mean, it, it probably eliminated, it probably, it, it probably, it probably forestalled some layoffs. It probably you know, helped some people get pay raises. It probably paid for replacing a window or two. I don't know, but you know, it, 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 I'm sure it did good. I'm sure that it's not, a, it wasn't a bad, the money wasn't a bad thing. The money itself wasn't bad. It just struck me that the process was just really screwed up and just was one more bit of evidence about how, how messed up our, our, our priorities and the process for funding higher education is in the state. So, um, the reaction you got to uh, pointing out the, uh, the the discrepancies in in your tweet, and then I think in some follow up media appearances and some articles that were written, the Chronicle of Higher Education. Maybe that's where I had the idea. The Chronicle of Higher Education was yeah, the one that right. reported about the library 
perhaps with your uh, your urging. Um, but the the reaction to that, at least from my perspective of just trying to track it on Twitter and some articles, you I guess it broke down into some predictable camps. Some people who thought you were you 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 deserve to be fired, <laughs> and, <laughs> and some other people who appreciated the comment you were making. Yeah, well, it, it didn't hurt that Joe Burrow uh, was one of the first to respond to the tweet with some with with a pretty indignant um, uh, message that uh, I can't remember exactly. He he del- they had he or they made him delete the tweet within an hour or so, but it said something to the effect of, you know, you're you're a, you're sitting over there, you know, um, benefiting from the fruits of our labors and complaining about us having a nice football locker room or something, you know. Mm-hmm. And I and I and I responded. I don't get a dime from you. Know, I don't. I'm not aware I get a dime from from anything you're doing. Um, well, that's I mean, interesting I, you, because in some cases, so so Burrow, of course, is the quarterback. But the in some cases, he. I mean, I think his his fire was poorly aimed. Um, yeah. But he he's right. I mean, he personally is not benefiting in terms of financially from the from the wealth being generated by LSU football. The money is going to places. It's going to pay his, the coaching staff exorbitant yeah, right. fees, and it's going to to the locker room. So, insofar as there's a benefit that the players experience, um, it's it's one of just the environment in which they're able to play college sports in. But uh, but yeah, I mean, there's it, that 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 raises a whole other set of questions about who actually who actually is benefiting. Um, and who ought to be benefiting from this, you know, effectively this professional sports league that operates yeah, in college right. campuses. And hey, I don't have a problem. I mean, I, I, I'm perfectly fine with paying these guys. I think they should be paid. I think it's I think that's a scandal that 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 um, that uh, Ed Ogeron, bless his heart, is making four million dollars a year and Joe Burrow got zero, uh, I guess, except he, you know, Odell Beckham gave him one hundred dollars the other night. So that's he made right. something this year. Um, but, um, but, you know, I was, and and I, I was happy that Burrow tweeted because I learned something, I learned the meaning of the Streisand effect. (laughs) I I realized (laughs) that it was, you know, it was really helpful. That's why I think that's why the the, the whole thing went, uh, went viral was because of Burrow brought a bunch of attention to it. And, and then it, it's kind of spun out from there. And it was, I thought it was a really useful conversation and I was happy to have it. And I did, I did take a lot of, I did get a lot of heat from people in the community who thought I was attacking the football team and attacking the, the football program or the athletic program. And I was not doing that at all. and never had any intention of attacking football. I'm perfectly fine with them buying whatever they can raise the money to buy for themselves. My, my point that I kept saying to people, and and I think most people understood it, at least those who, who spent a couple of minutes listening to me talk about it, is that I wasn't criticizing football. I just want I just want the the, the the rest of the university to have something just half as nice as what football has. I'd be happy with half as nice. I'd be happy with a library that's just half as nice as what the, the, the facilities that the school is able to provide for for student athletes. I'd be I'd be happy for anything that's just half as nice as what they get um, every day of the, of the, of the week. And, um, it was just to me a comment about the very screwed up priorities in the state in which we care a whole lot more about what goes on in the football field than we do in the classroom. Well, and it also just goes to show how thin the commitment from people who are alums or fans of LSU football 
how 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 that doesn't necessarily extend that that emotional connection really doesn't extend to the university um at least right. in terms of uh financially speaking right where you know yeah i mean they'll wear they'll wear hats that say lsu they'll be on campus uh to attend sporting events but but to your point before about you know could you find two people in in baton rouge to to raise funds for broken windows in an academic building uh you know that's that's where that's where the question of how much of a front porch or what is this front porch of athletics in terms of actually benefiting um the university and and i will grant and i think this is borne out in a whole bunch of academic studies about this that enrollment probably owes to some extent um and perhaps to a large extent to you know having a having a uh, a quality and high profile football program and athletic department that certainly drives enrollment at a number of different universities but um in terms of yeah in terms of share spreading the wealth or or encouraging the the wealth uh being spent on on the things that i would argue and i think you would agree actually matter at a university i think that's up for debate yeah it is it is and uh you know there sure there are it it, it i think the the there's a story out today, in fact, that says that since LSU won the national championship in football, enrollment or applications, I don't know what, I don't know exactly what they, how they define this, but applications or enrollment is up 5%, which is a pretty big jump. And, and, um, but you know what? We're not going to win the national championship every year. And, uh, you know, we can't, it would be madness to think that a school would, would, uh, put so many eggs in that basket, um, and not want to, um, not want to be a place where people just come to, uh, go to football games, but come to study and that, that we have the kind of, we provide the kind of value to young people that I think we do, why we wouldn't want to talk as much or more about that. And look, let the football, let the football speak for itself. We're not, we're no one around here is going to silence the, the, to talk about football. No one, there's nothing that we could ever do on this campus in our best days with the most money you could ever give us. Give us as much money as, they, as Harvard you know, has or Princeton or Yale has. We're, I don't, you give us all that money, give us all those faculty members, give us every, you know, just transplant the Harvard faculty, the Harvard campus to LSU, plop it down and leave the football facilities and the baseball and basketball facilities on the other side of campus. And there's nothing that would, would, would happen here that would ever overshadow uh, the acad- the athletics on this campus. It's it's just not. A, it, I don't. I just don't know why so many, um, why so many football fans and basketball fans and baseball fans are so threatened by the talk of hey, let's pay a little bit more attention to academics, as if somehow we're going to you know overthrow and overthrow it all and kick football off the uh, off the campus. That's yeah, never going to happen. Yeah, let's explore that. Why why do we think that the you know again something that seems to be so prominent and preeminent as athletics and the supporters of that feel threatened by those or seem to feel threatened at times by those who make very obvious and sane and reasonable comments about investing some modicum of that of that attention into uh into again what is actually the central purpose of the university i think it's because and maybe and maybe i'm at fault with in this and maybe some of some of us who talk about this a lot are at fault in the way we frame 
the debate. I tried to be very careful and clear about my support for LSU football, um, for LSU athletics, and my celebration of it. I think it's part of our culture, and I'm not looking to uh, diminish it in any way. I'm not looking to, to deny people no more than I would want to do away with Mardi Gras. I think it's just part of what makes us Louisiana. And so um, I'm not saying I want it's, it's not a zero-sum game, but I think that maybe some people hear people like me talking about it in a way that sounds to them like, like I'm trying to subtract from their, the stuff they care about to add to what I care about. And it's just, that's not what I mean. And I don't think most people, maybe, look, there are people on this campus. For example, the other day, there were, there were faculty members on this campus who were adamantly never going to cancel classes on Monday or Tuesday. Uh, they were going to hold classes. They were going to show up for class, and there weren't going to be anybody in that. There weren't going to be anybody there, but they were going to count everybody absent. And um, you know, the, that's their right. That was their right to do that. As a statement about priorities. Yes, I think so, and I and and I respect that. I really do. But I also think you've got to live in reality. And I, you know, the first day of class on my first day of class, the official first day of class on this campus this week, which was this semester, which was Wednesday instead of Monday of this week, I asked my group, my first class was 23 students. I said, hey, uh, how many of you would have been here Monday morning if I'd held, held class? I had three hands go up. A's to all of them. Yeah, yeah right. Exactly. <laughs> but I would have had to do it all over again. I had to, you know, I would have given them the lecture and given them the going over the syllabus and done all that. And I had to do it all over again on Wednesday. And, you know, so it I don't I don't fault anybody who was going to hold class on Monday. But I also think that, you know, there's there there comes a time when I think there 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 are these battles that you just you have, you know, everything that everything you have the right to do isn't something you should do. And every battle is not one you should fight. And I'm, 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 I'm trying to be a little wiser, trying to be, not always, but trying to be wiser about picking my fights and not, not casting what I'm saying about this as an attack on the culture around here, because that is just, that's not, you know, that'll, that'll, that'll change over time, but it's not, but I'm not going to change it in my time. And I'm not trying to, all I want to do is the, the, the part of the culture that I want to change is how much we care about how much we care about education. I don't want to. I don't want to make people care less about football. I just want them to find a little more room in their heart for for what goes on the other side of the stadium, the other side of the the, the campus. So, including the handful of faculty members you just described who were sort of holding protest classes, how would you describe in 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 large how the faculty responds recently to the success of the athletics department? Do you feel where are you on that continuum in terms of outspokenness, or just in terms of sentiment of uh, of, of of feeling like there's a? You said that you don't feel there's a zero sum game. I I wonder if you you notice that other uh, others of your colleagues feel that it is a zero sum game. Well, I think uh, I haven't had a lot of conversations about it among the people on my faculty, my school's faculty, but. You know, I think most people over here, my sense was most people over here were fine with it, that everybody, I mean, again, it's just, it was the first week of the semester. It's it's just not hard to adapt. Um, And so it didn't really present a whole lot of, you know, it didn't present any insurmountable challenges to anybody that I know to have to, you know, 
to adjust their syllabus just a, a bit to make make accommodations for missing one class um, out of the out of you know 30 meetings, um, and then they're going to add. If you, if you really feel strongly about it, we're gonna, we're going to have a couple of weekends where you can have the class you can have class on Saturday if you feel that strongly about it. Um, I'm not doing it because I just, it, you know I'm going to make I'm going to make that time up. But um, the, to answer your question, the the faculty senate. Is, is, my understanding is the faculty senate, or at least the faculty senate president, or maybe the executive committee of the faculty senate. I'm not sure exactly how the faculty senate uh, expressed itself, but my understanding was the faculty was on record as opposing uh, dismissing class on Monday and Tuesday of this week because of the football game. Um, so I don't know if that was just the opinion of the leadership of the faculty senate and not representative of the of the faculty at large i just don't know and does that does that speak i mean what what do you get the sense of just the general dynamic between athletics i maybe over the over the time that you've been there between the relationship between faculty and and athletics does it feel well, like it's in competition or or do most faculty members realize the school that they're at and or are fans of athletics well, I think you've got, yeah, I think you got some who are definitely fans and who, you know, get into the spirit of it all and enjoy and try to enjoy that as a, as a really interesting and exciting uh, component of their life here at LSU for however long they're here. Uh, I think there are some who are you know fairly new to this um, and they're still trying to figure out what's, what the heck is going on around here with all this excitement about football and and you know they're also trying to acclimate to the general culture around here, which is we're about we're in, we're entering Mardi Gras season, which is also kind of crazy. Um, you know we have football, we have football season, and then Mardi Gras season. It's yeah. just, you know it's it's just very different culture around here. So there, are, I've seen on our own faculty people who really embrace it, who really love everything about Louisiana and want to taste it all and and really live into it. And then I've seen others who who just don't, they just put their heads down and worry about the research. And look, if you're a junior faculty member, um, you know, you, you, your Saturdays during football season might be working on a paper, you know, you don't have time for that. You know, um, if, if you're more of a senior, um, scholar, you might have a little more time for that. Um, I think as there's just, you know, I just see different, all kinds of, I mean, there, 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 I'm sure there are a lot of faculty members on this campus who just have, who just don't pay any attention to it all at all, who never go to football games, who never really get into it. And look, if I weren't married to an LSU grad who loves LSU football, who grew up going to LSU football games, and if I didn't have two children who are currently undergrads at LSU who are, who are very much into all this, maybe I wouldn't be as excited about it either. Maybe I wouldn't, maybe I'd just ignore it. But I, it's, I, for, for, for me and my family, it's pretty, it's pretty impossible to, 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 not, to not pay attention. So do swept do you, up in it. Do, do, does your wife and kids uh, uh, have issue of you uh, making your noises about the uh, <laughs> about the vacuuming of your office? <laughs> no, uh, my wife, my, my wife and I are on the same page pretty much on this. Um, and I remember asking after this was over, uh, I, I think I was asking my daughter about this. I said, so how do you feel about your dad being the guy that everybody is kind of, you know, talking about getting in a fight with the, with the quarterback. And I think she said, Oh, it's okay. I don't really mind. I know what you're doing. You know, I mean, it wasn't really, it really didn't, it didn't really bother her. And I don't, but I don't think it really totally penetrated. I don't think she, you know, this was, she was busy doing other stuff. She didn't really have time to think about it. She saw the tweet 
moved on. Um, you know, I mean, maybe people were if people were, were talking to her about it all day. It might bother her more, but I think it, I think it was just a glancing blow to her awareness and trying just trying to you know survive her statistics class. All right, let's talk about the state of the library. Is there any glimmer of hope on the horizon that the funds come to <clears throat> that building or the other buildings of of your of your concern or that you've noticed in particularly dire shape? Well, as I as I mentioned earlier, um, there is they they did uh, the legislature did appropriate some money um, to do some um, to fix fix up some of the buildings on campus in the in the legislative session last year. I think maybe twenty thirty million dollars worth, which is not insignificant, but I think the bat just the Baton Rouge campus has about. 800 million or more in deferred maintenance so there's I was gonna say 20 or 30 million dollars will build you a nice football performance center <laughs> <laughs> but it is apparently enough to fix up the the uep long field house which is a very big building it's got a number of uh, a number of um academic departments in it and is in, in is a historic building and needs a lot of work and that's a big deal and um the library that building can be fixed up the library needs to be torn down and um it's just a it's a fatally flawed building and there's not a whole lot of there's not a whole lot to be gained by fixing it up you've got to tear it down and build a new one and um it's going to be really expensive from what i've been told you know at least 100 million maybe 120 million dollars to uh to do that and in in recent years the state has has largely exhausted its um it's bonded indebtedness or at least hit the ceiling on it so that they don't have the money to, 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 to spend on college campuses like uh, they used to. And it's become a situation where if, if you want to fix up a building or build a new building that costs that much, you really got to go out and raise the money uh, yourself or at least find half the money. Uh, that's how we got a new um, engineering building on this campus. Um, the school found a donor to give, I think maybe 50 million or something and went to the state and said, I got, you know, we need the, we need the matching dollars and the state came up with it. So, uh, I think the school has tried and tried and tried to raise the money for the library in that way. And it's just come up dry. And, um, best I can tell the, the LSU board of supervisors has, has maybe on the verge of raising student fees to do all this. Maybe, maybe, maybe on the verge of just making the students pay for it. When all else fails, right? Yeah. Well, there really is, you know, I mean, it's, it's, if the legislature won't do it and you can't find a donor, you know, I think that's, that's really, that's really all they've got. And, um, I'm not crazy about the idea of it at all, but, um, I'm also not crazy about the idea of, of, of having the, you know, the most deplorable librarian in the country on my campus. And that was Bob Mann. Next, I'm speaking with Peter Schrader. Peter is an associate professor of health, exercise, and sports science at the University of the Pacific in Stockton, California. Peter previously taught sport management at Truman State University and the University of California, Santa Barbara. He served as Pacific's chair of the health, exercise, and sports sciences department, His work has been published in several academic journals, and he serves on the editorial board of the Journal of Issues in Intercollegiate Athletics. Our conversation today anchors to an article he wrote a decade ago for GIA 
seeking a model for judging the organizational culture of an athletic department. And so, here's Peter Schrader. All right, Pete, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Can you give me a little bit of a background of your of your academic uh, studies and pursuits and what you specifically have tailored your focus on to, to, uh, in the study of college athletics? Yeah, um, well, my background, I, I was a college athlete and was sort of kind of interested in the whole um, business side of things. So I sort of pursued my higher education in sport management. And the, what was your sport? The, um, I actually played college football at uh, Truman State, which is a Division II school in Missouri. Um, but as I got into the sort of got into my education, I really realized that a lot of the things that happen in athletics are sort of grounded in in higher education. And so I actually got my doctorate in, in higher education studies at the University of Missouri. And that's where I sort of got into this relationship between athletics and higher education and why there's such a or not oftentimes a big gap between the way those two worlds um, or the way those two entities see the world. So um, the other thing that's interesting about you is as you're currently an academic studying college sports, you're married to somebody who's, who's uh, a coach, a college sports coach. Tell me about your wife and, and uh, where she is coached and what sport. Yeah. So my wife uh, has been a softball coach for over 25 years and uh, she played at UCLA. So she had a vastly different athletic background than me and obviously academic experience too. Um, and so she, she kind of worked her way up the coaching path and, and she coached um, a division two. She's coached at junior college and um, then coached at UC Santa Barbara for several years um, in their athletic department. And um so first off, it's made for some very interesting discussions because she obviously sees the world from the head coach's point of view and, and has goals and objectives to be successful as a coach. And then obviously I see the world as an academic and as a professor and, and want students to sort of prioritize different things. But um, it's been very valuable because I do I do see the world through a coach's eyes. I do understand the challenges that they're up against and I understand the pressures that are on them. Um, and so, uh, the, I think it helps me in my research because when I go in to talk to a coach or I go in to talk to an athletic director, um, I have a little bit more credibility with them because of the perspective I get at home. Uh, but simultaneously when I'm doing research, I can sit in the provost's office or a president's office and still, um, t- sort of speak their language about athletics too. So it does give me a good balance and, and she gives me great perspective on, uh, what, what, what head coaches are up against. So the the uh, the paper that you had written that I sort of want to anchor our discussion to was uh, was in 2010. You wrote a uh, a academic paper for the Journal of Issues in Intercollegiate Athletics, uh, the title of which was "A Model for Assessing Organizational Culture in Intercollegiate Athletic Departments." And I want to just start with the conclusion and maybe work a little bit of our way backwards. Um, sure. Because it's, I think it's a very salient paper, I, certainly then and 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 as of this present moment. You, one of the the in the conclusion you write, intercollegiate athletics are rife with problems that emerge out of cultural misalignment. Can you share a little bit about what you mean about the an athletics department's culture and how that can come to be misaligned? Sure, I I think you know. Co- Coaches and athletics are, they're sort of in a, in a, 
I don't I hate to say zero sum game, but there's winners and losers every day. You know, they they see the world as um, we've got to win. We and there's real uh, economic pressure, especially at the highest levels for them to do that. Um, and so, you know, that's the, the, the assumptions that they operate off of are how can we win games? How can we be successful, especially obviously, as you know, at the at the highest levels, like we're going to see tonight, you know, in the in the football national championship. So their value set is certainly orient, oriented around success. And in uh, higher education, you know, our you know, if I'm teaching, I, I'm not really necessarily judged on success. And, and you know, maybe I should be. But in, in terms of, you know, whether or not my, um, you know, I'm not judging whether I win games or whether my students get jobs or not. My job is to sort of convey information and knowledge and expertise to the students and, and then to develop it, you know, in writing paper. So, you know, when, it, when I say there's a misalignment, like we're at a lot of uh, educational institutions, they're not seeing the world the same way and they're not actually going after the same objectives. Um, and so there's not an educational foundation in a lot of, in my opinion, in a lot of big time division one athletic departments. Um, and whereas they exist sort of in this in this world where knowledge and, and education really should be the priority. So that's kind of where that miss. That's what I mean by that. Miss and some of this seems like, at least in any practical way, even if there were major reforms, some of this is just irreconcilable. There's never going to get to a point where college sports is just not going to care about winning. And, you know, and, and similarly, there's not going to get to a point where the win-loss success of a college athletics program is going to necessarily jive with all of the interests and concerns of main campus. So at a certain point, there's just there is just a kind of conflict there inherently. Yeah, I think there's an inherent conflict, although, you know, in, in some of the research I've done, I think there's ways you can do it where the the. Um, misalignment doesn't have to be so great. Um, but I think, you know, there are, there are just external pressures and economic forces that really just pull athletics in a completely different way um, than, you know, than the economics of, of a faculty member or an, an academic department's job. So, yeah, I, I think, you know, you can go to the, whether it's the Ivy League or to some, you know, some Division three conference and you say, well, they, they align it okay, but absolutely, you know, there's going to be coaches that want to get a player in because they're going to help them win games, whether they're at Mount Union College or they're where they're at, you know, LSU. It doesn't make a difference. Like you said, they're going to want to win um, regardless of the level at which they're competing. So your your paper set out to to design a model for assessing intercollegiate athletic cultures, which is interesting because culture is one of the buzz phrases we hear well, I guess we hear in business in general, but we hear a lot in, in the discussions of college athletic departments where the, usually it's brought up when something has gone horribly wrong or when there's a scandal um, or when there's a coaching change. We need a different kind of culture. And yep. it, it doesn't seem to have a lot of universal sense of, of what that term is defined as <laughs> you can it's, it's very it's very oblique so you you went about trying to actually establish some some standards and and a way of evaluating uh and i i suppose in some ways defining what is an intercollegiate athletic department culture and then what is the continuum between good and good and bad on that on that culture scale yeah I, so you're 100 percent right i mean that's sort of the where it started is you'd hear coaches say, oh, our culture, we have a great culture. We don't have a good culture. And like you said, most of the time, actually, when I first started doing this, it was because Penn State had their 
their Sandusky scandal and oh the culture is problematic and then and you say like well what do, what do they actually mean what do, right. what do, what do they think culture is um, and so yeah I, I I went about this trying to figure out well what what does culture entail and for a college for for a business culture generally you know if you look at sort of the business literature they'll say oh you know you've got sort of the things you can see which I call the artifacts um, and then they have the things that they tell you which are important like their mission statement which is um, you know, so we, we say like um, there are spouse values, but then the thing that you really have to dig into when you look at any culture is what 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 are really the things that people act on? Like what what are the things we you know I call them basic assumptions, but what are the real reasons that people make decisions? And so if you look at a regular business culture, you'd say, well, I'd look at those three things. What can I see, or what are the artifacts? What do they tell you is important, and then what do they re- what what are the things that really drive behavior? But when you get into college athletics. Um, finding those things out is really difficult because you can't just look at the business itself. You've got to look at some other things. So the athletic department exists in a broader institutional culture. So you've got this, you know, this whole university, which has a culture. And then does the athletic department culture actually reflect that or does it work against that? And so that's kind of always one thing that is, that is interesting. And then the athletic department also exists in this sort of sports culture, which is, um, you know, on TV and in the media all the time. And so you have to kind of look at that external environment and how does that pull the athletic department culture? And so, you, so I, the, the, I would say the athletic department culture kind of gets pulled between this academic culture and this entertainment sports culture. And it's really up to the leaders of an institution to figure out how are they going to situate that? How are they going to fit that into the middle? And sometimes they don't. And that's when the misalignment really occurs, when they don't give attention to how consistent are those values across um, in, or excuse me, in the athletic department culture between the institution and the external environment? And I guess the, the sort of the bottom line figures don't necessarily reflect culture, although they might often, you know, whether or not an athletic department produces a lot of victorious teams and makes makes a lot of money because of that um, would be suggestive to many that the culture is good. They're winning. But we've, you know, anecdotally, I think anybody who's, who's followed college sports can come up with some examples of, even if you're just looking at a specific program level, a successful program where there might have been things in there that people would say was reflective of a poor culture. That there's, that, so winning doesn't necessarily suggest that a uh, that an athletic department's culture is what what you would want, pr- particularly in the in a uh, in the setting of a of an institution of higher, of higher learning. Um, so I guess that only just adds to the, to the confusion perhaps that even successful athletic departments, um, aren't necessarily those that exhibit great cultures or the best cultures. No, that's, I agree hundred percent. So just by looking at success or revenue does not mean that that's a successful culture. I, I, I think the and I hate to pick on Baylor because they've made some changes, but Baylor's a great example of that. I mean, they were right. really, really successful in football, but at what, what, at what cost? I mean, they're, they're the preeminent Christian organ, uh, institution in America and the behavior that was exhibited by some of their football players and their coaches. And, and I don't know, I mean, it went pretty high up right. was, couldn't have been more, right. um, uh, go, go against the Christian thought that, that, that their leaders would have wanted. And so, yeah, just because you're winning doesn't mean you're winning in the right way. And, we, and you know, I think that's something that we talk a lot about in, in faculty circles was, well, at what price do you want success? Do we really want students in our classroom who are incapable of doing the work just because they're really good at a particular sport? 
Um, and so, yeah, I would say you're right. If you just look at the superficial level, if you just look at the artifacts and say, oh, they're winning and there's a lot of people in the stadium, you know, does that actually mean that they're one financially um, successful? But two, you know, what 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 values are being reflected in the success that they're attaining? And there and there are schools that do it. There are schools that absolutely do it. But um, but that's not the only metric to look at. So you uh, evaluated a case study um, focusing on a on a small school relatively um, and how their athletic department culture uh, existed. You you your case study looked at <clears throat> a school called Pacific Christian College, which is a liberal arts Christian school. Um, can you, if to the best of your recollection, can you can you remember why that school was interesting and perhaps practically why that was a good uh, case study to to explore? Yeah, um, no, certainly it was um, a school that was very overtly Christian. And um, just like the thing I mentioned with Baylor is you, you always kind of wonder like, well, you know, how how rigorously do they actually execute this in athletics? Because, you know, a, a school might use it to attract uh, donors or students, but do they really, you know, carry this out uh, through and through? And so that was sort of the impetus uh, for the study was just to say like, hey, how, how well do they really execute this in athletics? Because there are so many other pressures on athletics um, that maybe might pull you away from your core values. That's right. Um, but what they did there, they were they they were able to execute it. But again, I think they're flying under the radar. You know, they're they're at a, at a level that is not on television, that doesn't get coverage beyond their regional area, and uh, and so the the external pressure to sort of for them to you know maybe admit athletes who uh, don't reflect their values or to hire coaches who don't reflect their values is not as extreme as it might be at a at a bigger institution or was at least. So. What were some of the things that you that you found in in in, in exploring them, and and what is what does their experience speak to other kinds of schools, perhaps larger schools? Yeah, I, I think you know what I found at at this particular institution was that it was it was sort of embedded in the institution that fr- from the president, the um, the board of regents, all the way on down, that everything that they were going to do was going to be reflected. In, in a, a core set of Christian values. And it didn't stop at, you know, it didn't stop with faculty. It was whether you were the president of student life or whether you were the assistant basketball coach or the swimming coach, there was going to be some element of the hiring process where you had to be able to demonstrate your adherence to Christian values. I mean, it was a, it was a place where if you, if that you would be uncomfortable working or being, if you were not able to, uh, correspond with those values. And so it was, uh, and so what I always talk about is if you really want to have a strong culture, you have to have that alignment from top down. And it's not just something that's, oh, one leader brings it in and they implement it. But as soon as that leader has gone, well, those values go with them. You've got to have it sort of ingrained into the um, sort of the DNA of the organization at this particular institution they had, you know, they had, when I had studied it, they had just changed presidents, but in the presidential hiring process, that was a, a major issue. They had had turnover in coaches, and one of the coaches that they had had was not coaching in what they would have described as a Christian way. And they said, look, we're, you're winning. And actually, it was, it was interesting. They were winning games, and they had they had actually been a conference champion in that particular sport, but that coach was let go because um, he was not coaching in a way that was reflective of the institution. And so you know, they were making decisions based on, like I said earlier, those assumptions that were real assumptions, not sort of just 
fake assumptions that we that we would tell the media or that look good. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that leadership alignment from from the top all the way to the bottom is really the critical thing that I pulled out of um, looking at Pacific Christian to say, if you really want to have a strong culture, it has to start at the top. It has to be embedded in the in the DNA of the organization and it has to be done consistently. And do you think that there's something specific about a school that size um, that would be able to make the decision to, let's say, jettison a successful coach, um, whereas you wouldn't find that same ability or likelihood uh, at, a, at a larger school that might, where, where athletics might be even more prominent? Yeah, I think there's two two things about that. One, the size of the school is is, is absolutely um, an issue because, you know, it, it was a school of probably 2,000 students. I mean, you're you're going to have to see those people every day. I mean, it's going to be uncomfortable for you if you're not coaching or teaching in a way that's reflective of those institutional values and you're surrounded by people who are going to sort of reinforce it all the time. So you go to lunch, you go work out, you go to practice and, and you have to face the music all the time. Whereas if you're at a bigger school, you know, a lot of times – the facilities on the outskirts and you don't have to interact with those people at all. So I think, you know, the first thing is the size of the school. Um, and then, I, but I do think this, the, the other element to that is um, the religious nature of the school too. I mean, I think, you know, whether it's Catholic faith or Mormon faith or whatever it might be, is that makes it a heck of a lot easier to have consistent values where if you're at a public school, that's humongous. Like when I was teaching at UC Santa Barbara, I mean, there's so many different pockets of values that you're always going to be able to find people who who are going to attach to your values. And it's just so much more diverse when you're at a religious institution. It tends to be, a, I mean, there's so much more similarity in the types of people that you have. That's a fair point. So what, again, this was a study you had done in, in 2010 or a, a paper you had written in 2010. We're now a decade um, past it. And, and the discussion of reform, major reform in college sports has sort of reached a fevered pitch, at least in mm -hmm. particular kinds of areas. Is there, is there ways you would, you would see how your findings would be applied to the larger conversation where you're not just looking at a single institution and how it might align itself and its, and its athletics department culture to its, to the rest of the university, but just the deeper conversation of the culture of intercollegiate athletics and, and what makes it work and what makes it malfunction. I mean, I always say on that, my go-to response on that is, it, what do you want the college, the culture of college athletics to be? And, and I don't have preferences one way. I mean, I, I mean, I probably do have preferences one way or the other, but I, I think we just need to be honest about what it is we're doing. Like what are the real values that, that are important to, to institutions, to fans and, 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 you know, to the industry that is college athletics. So if we really want it to be about entertainment, then let's make it about entertainment and, you know, we can, you know, have that, let the players um, profit from their name, image and likeness. And, and we can charge, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars for tickets and, and feel okay about it, you know, and, and say like, look, that's okay for us to have entertainment. I mean, Jay Billis always talks about, Look, we, we have um, I mean, I'm at a place where we have a conservatory of music and we have students that perform and we pay money to go watch and perform. And that's totally OK with me. Um, or do we want college athletics to really be a learning lab for values that might be, you know, a little bit of a different model? So I, I think it just goes back to having um, Americans and administrators and coaches be honest about what it is we really want from athletics. So 
are the values entertainment values? And is that what we want? And that's okay if we do, we just have to structure it in that way. Or do we really truly want it to be educational? In which case, you know, paying coaches, you know, millions, millions of dollars to lead high school kids is, you know, how educational is that? You know, it's a different, that's a, you know, you're learning to take orders and to go where the coaches tell you to go. It's a different deal. <laughs> so I think, you know, I, I just, when you say like, well, what's the broader nature of this? I think we just have to be honest about what we're doing. What are the values we want to reinforce? Pick them and then go after them. I mean, I, I, that's what I say. Well, that's a good suggestion. I wonder if it will be, if it'll be heated at all in the, uh, in the reform conversations, but well, yeah. The, the, well, what happens with that is that the NC2A gets sidelined, you know, in that conversation because they have an invest. Yeah, you know, obviously they're, yeah, they, they want to keep making their money from the basketball tournament. And so that complicates things. So, I mean, I, obviously it's easy for me to sit here and say, well, what values do we want to go after? And um, there, and, and I think even at the division one level, like if you talk to, you know, people in my conference in Gonzaga, they have different ideas of, than, you know, Pepperdine or Loyola Marymount about what, right. what values would be important. So I think that's a, it's a hugely difficult conversation that I probably oversimplified in my answer. Or it's a very simple thing, but just it, it's, it's staggering the, the incentives that, that are uh, driving other kinds of decisions where obviously not everybody is coming up to the table um, with their hearts open to the idea of, you know, what's the best way that this can serve, you know, the greatest number of people and the, and the educational interests of our institutions, there's, you know, there's, there's people who have, you know, personal incentives and, and are, that are driven in, in dramatically different ways than that. So, yeah, but I, I think there is something to be said about the simplicity of what ought to be. And, and the only thing that's complicated is that there's just, there's a lot of, you know, to use your word, there's a lot of misaligned in this case, incentives, uh, in addition to cultures. Yes, you're right. I mean, you're, I, I agree with you 100 percent there. There just are so many different incentives that um, that some people can attain through this process. And, and it's and it's different by institution. Right. I mean, you know, the school that I'm at, we're not going to be on ESPN ever or, we're, you know, it's going to be really hard for us to do that where we're in a conference with a school that has pretty much all their games on ESPN. And That's so right. what they want out of this process is much different than what our institution wants out of the process. That was Peter Schrader. I would like to thank him and Bob Mann for joining me on the podcast. If you would like to check out previous episodes or make certain to catch future ones, subscribe to The Intercollegiate via Apple iTunes, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or other major podcasting apps. You can also listen directly to the show off our website at www.theintercollegiate.com. As I mentioned in last week's show, we are no longer producing weekly issues of Newsletter of Intent, but we do plan to have an issue coming out next week that I think you'll want to read. So if you haven't yet done so, I encourage you to subscribe to the newsletter by going to theintercollegiate.substack.com. As always, I thank you for listening, and until next week, I'm Daniel Libet.